0: We love people who are different than us. And so with no further ado, would you please give a warm welcome to Renee? Hi, thank you. Thank you. We have a big topic today. It's God's two primary purposes for our lives, for yours and mine. We're going to try to unpack that in about 35 minutes. And we're going to see, we're going to focus on how fulfilling those two primary purposes impacts us, our generations, and the world around us, and how not fulfilling them impacts the generations and the world around us. We're going to do that by summarizing the book of Judges, certain characters, and the people of Israel in the book of Judges, which is. Chapter 8 of the book, The Story. I'm going to assume that you've read chapter 8 and you've read the book of Judges. So I'm going to do a lot of summarizing. If you haven't read, then please do so this week so the message can come to life with you. And uh, I just want to thank, again, Pastor Bill and Pastor Ken for blessing me by giving me the opportunity to share the message this morning. It's a hard message. Big topic, and I'm going to begin by sharing a little bit about my testimony, the relevant parts as it relates to this topic today and the book of Judges. I was born into a Christian family in the Middle East. I was raised and traveled throughout the Middle East and North Africa in nations where up to 99% of the population is Muslim. 1% other, and part of that 1% would be Christian. Starting at age 4 and for the next 7 years, I was kidnapped, tortured, persecuted, abused by Muslims. Radical Muslims, that is. I grew to hate Muslims. At age 12, in 1975, I was literally at war with Muslims. But at age 13... God took me out of that, and I came to the U.S. in 1976. But in high school, which, by the way, was Edison High School in Huntington Beach, I transferred all that anger and hate from Muslims toward God, and I walked away. That journey lasted decades, but God redeemed me. And restored me. September 11, 2001, 15 years ago, my kids come running to me as they're getting ready for school. Said, Dad, you got to come watch TV. And we looked and witnessed the World Trade Center on fire as the terrorist attack was unfolding. For me, I was a baby Christian. And all that anger and hate I had for Muslims just resurfaced. It impacted us. My uh, eldest son at the point was a freshman in high school. He said, Dad, after high school and college, I'm going to serve God and country by joining the military. And he is in the Navy today. But he is a light for Christ within the Navy. For me, I started going around as a sought-after teacher to help churches and Christians process, make sense of radical Islam, what's going on, how do we respond politically, militarily, etc. And I can tell you, for seven years, I was missing the point. Because my messages and responses to the churches was not Christ-centered. It was not gospel-centered. It was focused on other things. I'm ashamed to tell you I used to joke. Just gather them all up, put them in one place and nuke them all and get rid of the problem once and for all. But God was working on my heart. Just like He's working on the heart of every person here today. And It's like the Spirit, as I started getting into more Bible study, the Holy Spirit was taking over. It started showing me things that I didn't notice before. All of a sudden, God's two primary purposes for our lives was jumping out at me. And realized right there in Genesis that God gave us in chapters 1 and 2 a glimpse into paradise. And then he mentions it throughout the Bible and then ends the Bible in Revelation by give us a, giving us a glimpse into paradise. The essence of paradise is the primary purpose for our lives, for yours and mine, and that is to have a personal relationship with God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm assuming if you're here today, you already have that relationship with God. That's his primary purposes for our lives. If you don't, Please don't leave today without checking into that. Talk with somebody. Because that is the primary purpose of our lives. For God to restore us into a relationship with Him. That's the main plot of the Bible. But what also jumped out at me, Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God revealed His second primary purposes for us. That was the first command He gave. He said, go, be fruitful and multiply. God wanted Adam and Eve to fill paradise with more children that he can have a relationship with. That's the second primary purpose and it's reaffirmed throughout the Bible all the way through. So in 2008, as God was convicting me, I was convicted that I was missing that. And the way he worked it through with me was ask me some questions. Perhaps you can ask yourself the same questions this morning. His question to me was, All right, you've been talking about Muslims for seven years. How many Muslims have you pointed to Christ the last month? He said, How about the last year, Renaud? How about the last seven years since September 11? My answer to all of the questions was, Zero. He even took it further. How about non Muslims? How many have you pointed to Christ? It was zero. I was fruitless. I was missing the point. The point was that God redeemed me so He can redeem other redeem others through me. I wasn't fruitful and multiplying spiritually. You see, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, that relationship with God was severed in Genesis chapter 3, but we also see that immediately, thank God, he put his plan of salvation into effect. He already had it in place. So now, the way being fruitful and multiply changed. It was, all right, now that I've redeemed you. Go point others to the only Redeemer that can restore their relationship to God. That brings us up to the big idea. So, in your outline, the big idea is that God redeemed you so you can join His mission. Don't miss it, church. Church. And that there's a war going on. September 11, 2001, was a reflection, a tiny reflection of a physical battle that is nothing compared to the spiritual battle that's going on. It's just a glimpse. September 11 was awful, tragic, but it's just something that's very temporary. There's an eternal battle going on with eternal consequences. And our adversary, we see him coming in in Genesis chapter 3 and highlighted throughout the Bible, is Satan and his demons. Just like God wants two primary purposes for our lives, Satan has two primary purposes for his. One is to keep you away from having a relationship with God. He steers us to have other gods. Adam and Eve were steered to having other gods. They were going to fulfill their mission and do it their way. You and I are guilty of the same thing. His second primary purpose is is if if you're still redeemed, he says, all right, I failed in part one. His second part is, well, at least I can distract them. So they don't redeem, they don't fulfill the second thing, and that's to point others to have a redeemed relationship with God through Christ. So that battle is going on throughout the Bible. That battle is going on today in peaceful Huntington Beach. And the whole Bible, I'm summarizing again the Bible, shows us that in Genesis, starting with chapter 3, The first major character is Noah. So we get into Noah's story, Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And we see the same cycle happen that started with Adam and Eve and continues today. Within a generation, no matter how awesome the things that God does or did, we lose focus. We stop fulfilling his primary purpose for our lives. God redeems Noah. Within a generation, it's like, hello, didn't you see what God did? They already lost track. We see that in Genesis 10, 11. Then God redeems Abraham. Again, we see the same cycle of failure happening through, happening through his descendants. It, then God redeems Israel. Now we're up to Exodus, he says, all right, I'm going to redeem this nation in order that there'll be a model so I can redeem other nations through their example. But no matter what He did, we see that within a generation, sometimes within the same day, Moses up goes up to the mountain, they already are building a golden calf. God was convicted me in 2008. I was the same. Seeing the same thing with other Christians and non-Christians. We're prone to the same thing. This leads us to judges. So now, they're in the promised land. We have a period of 400 years in judges. They They have 13 judges. And we see that cycle of failure happening. They get in trouble. God does awesome things through a judge. Redeems them within a generation. Mm, Back to the same thing. In the story, in chapter 8, there's some commentaries. On page 105, you can look at that up later. I'm just going to tell you what it says. I selected this sentence to describe the cycle this way. It says, Eventually, the people of Israel turned away from God again. In page 107 of chapter 8 of the story, it says, The people, forgetting their special relationship to God, began to adapt to the surrounding cultures. Pages 107 and 119, it puts it this way, repeats it. The Israelites continued their pattern of spiritual compromise. In 2008, I was convicted. I was Israel. I've been compromising. I was in the promised land because God has saved me. But my life did not reflect his mission did not reflect being fruitful and multiplying. So today we're going to look at three characters out of the book of Judges to highlight this lesson, as God taught me. And... We'll look a little bit about the people of Israel. So the first character out of the book of Judges that I want to highlight is found in Judges chapter 13 through 16. Samson. I was convicted that I was in so many ways just like Samson. We see that God called Samson into mission. He equipped him with unique powers and abilities in order to fulfill that mission. But Samson was all about Samson. It was his glory. It was his pleasure, his plans, that he utilized God's resources to do those things. I was guilty of the same thing. I was not fulfilling God's primary purpose for my life. Just like Samson, I was misusing my god-given talents, time, resources. For a lot of us, it looks differently. To me, it was it looked like, hey, what's the next cruise I can take? My life centered about around these other things. I came to church once a week. I did Bible study once a week. I gave a little bit to church. But the rest of the time, it was about me. I used my freedom to fulfill My plans. God convicted me in 2008 that by 2001, I had made Jesus my Savior. But I had not yet made him Lord over my day-to-day life. He's supposed to be Lord of every decision, every plan. His mission, the central focus of my life. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says, Seek ye first the kingdom. All of these other things that you're pursuing, renewed well, they shall be added unto you. I realized I was like a lot of Christians. I had it reversed. Give me health so I can enjoy the beach. Give me wealth so I can have more fun. I reversed it. God said, His kingdom come, His will be done. Therefore, give us this day our daily bread so I can do Your will, so I can have Your kingdom as the primary focus of my life, so I can be fruitful and multiply. God redeemed me in order to redeem others through me. He's done the same with you. So, as I made God the central focus of my life and Jesus the Lord of my day-to-day life. The transformation of my heart became complete. Like all of a sudden, all that anger and rage I had toward Muslims, God removed it, replaced it with His love, His perspective. As a result, I Hope Ministries was founded in 2009. And there I was. Serving the God I once denied. Inspiring the church and me along with them to serve the very people I once hated. Complete 360. Now when God gave me the ministry, my initial response was, Lord, no. Who am I? Plus, Lord, you're giving me an unpopular message. The last thing the church really wants is to help Muslims find and follow Jesus. Perhaps not consciously, but it was the actions that spoke. So it's like, Lord, I don't want this unpopular message. Because statistically speaking, 90% of Muslims that live in Christianized nations like America have never been befriended by a Christian. Mm. Convicted. I was one of them. 86% of Muslims in the world have never heard the gospel. That's 1.5 billion image bearers that don't know how to be reconciled to God because they don't know that Jesus is the only way to do so said, Lord, I don't want that unpopular message. Who am I to make a dent in those kind of statistics? I didn't go to seminary. I don't have a degree. Well, that brings us up to Deborah. Second character I want to highlight in the book of Judges. Deborah, her story is found in Judges chapters 4 and 5. So it was like the Lord saying, all right, take a look at Deborah. So I was imagining Deborah the first time she heard the call. That the Lord is telling her to be judged. Like, wait a minute, Lord. There's never been a female ruler over Israel ever. By the way, not before, not since. Who am I that these men are going to listen to me? And How did the Lord respond? Well, He made her judge and prophet. That would be the equivalent today of the Lord responded by making Deborah president of the nation, its only supreme court ruler and judge, and the spiritual leader of the nation, holding all three positions at the same time. The lesson to you and me is God equips us. With whatever we need to accomplish the task that He calls us for. Whatever He's calling you for. Because the lesson He had to teach me that it's not about me. It's about who He is. He accomplishes the task just like He did through Deborah. And the command that God gave Deborah and the people of Israel in Judges 4 verse 6 is a command that applies to me. You and me today. So, the next slide it has the verse up. It says in 4 6 of Judges, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go? In the New Testament, that's the whole point, the ultimate point of Jesus' ministry. He says it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Now that I've done everything, I've redeemed you, I've conquered death and conquered Satan, therefore go. Go. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria. That's the, he's summarizing. The two primary purposes. Now that I've redeemed you, let go appoint others so I can redeem them, redeem them through you. In 2008, I was convicted. I didn't go. I knew of Muslims around. I didn't go across the street. I knew of Muslim co-workers. I didn't go. I would go to Middle Eastern restaurants and grocery stores to eat that heavenly Jesus food. And Muslims are everywhere. I would stay away from them. I didn't go. To extend my hand. At that point, God pointed me to the tragedy that's found in Judges chapter 5. In Deborah's song, you have a hall of fame, but you also have a hall of shame. It's found in Judges, the next slide, in Judges chapters 5, verses 15 through 16. It says, Reuben. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searching of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Verse 17, it names three other tribes. Galid, his descendant of Joseph, beloved uh, 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 character of Joseph, the tribe of Joseph. Dan, Asher, all of these tribes in today's language, it's like they're saying, hey, we've got good businesses. We're better than the rest of the world, economically speaking. We've got thriving businesses. You've blessed us, Lord. Thank you. Now I'm going to hang around at the beach, take my cruise, go fishing, go surfing, whatever it is. They didn't join God's mission. I was convicted that that was me. I wasn't joining God's mission. So then we see that cycle of failure happening throughout the rest of the Bible. But then God calls the church. It replaces Israel as his instrument of redemption. So as God calls the church, we see that in the first 600 years after Christ came, they were typically faithful. As, even unto death, even in the face of certain persecution in the spiritually dark Roman Empire, they kept going and going. They would kill one, five more would pop up. They kept coming. As a result, they transformed the Roman Empire with the power of the gospel. Nothing else. As a result, the Middle East and North Africa became Christianized. They brought Christianity to Europe. They brought Christianity to the U.S. We're here today because of their faithful witness. But then something happened. They became like Reuben. They got thriving businesses. There's safety. There's comfort. They strayed away. So what happened to the Middle East and North Africa after 600 A.D.? When the opposition came, named Islam, the church stopped going. As a result... You've got that region where Christianity is born, or was born, now 99% Muslim. You realize the same trends are happening in Christianized nations? Because we start becoming so inward focused. So the next slide shows a little bit of that. Perhaps we don't mean to. But the reality is some numbers up on the screen. First number is that there are 5.8 million Christian workers in ministry full time in the world today. 99.995% of them or 5,770,000 work in Christianized nations, evangelized world. They minister to about 3 billion people. The rest of the world would become like Reuben. 30,000 are ministering to the other 4 billion people of whom 80 to 90% have never heard the gospel. Would become content in being in our Jerusalem. Forget Samaria. It's tough. They're the enemy. I was like that. Just nuke them all. Get it over with. There'll be no more Samaria. Let's stick with Jerusalem. So even though we might feel different and think different through our actions, we've become like Reuben and the four tribes that have not joined our brothers and sisters adequately in God's mission. There's an impact for that. And the next slide, again, know um, it's an unpopular message, but... According to Gallup Poll and Pew Research, in 1900, 97% of Americans considered themselves Christian. Since 1970, that has declined rapidly. Today, 70% of Americans consider themselves Christians. The non-religious went from basically 0%, today it's 17%. The growth of Christianity is not keeping up with the growth of population, whether here or around the world, while the other movements are gaining ground. Within 25 years, 66% of Americans are projected to be Christian, while 25% non-religious. There's a price to be paid. And the Lord has given us Plenty of warning. So, what's the solution? Well, it's found in the third character in Judges. In Judges, we see the story of Gideon. And in verses chapter uh, uh, Judges chapter 6 and 7. And in verses 14 through 16, I've just got a few words of that uh, commandment that the Lord gave him. And he said, hey... Do not I send you? I'll be with you. You see, Gideon was hesitant because of saying, Hey, you're sending us to an army that's well equipped and they outnumber us four to one 135,000 to 32,000. The Lord made it even worse. (laughs) He brought them down to 300. All of a sudden, they were outnumbered 450 to one. But the Lord said to Gideon, Hello. The next slide, he says, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The spirit of the Lord is with you and me today. It's been there since Pentecost. We have the same power. We have the same authority. We have the same weapons. That's found in Judges chapter 7. summarized in verse 16. The weapons of the battle was trumpet jars with torches inside of them. That's to point us to Jesus and to the New Testament. They were supposed to go to battle and blow the trumpet, break the jar, lift up the torch in it. We see that summarized in the New Testament throughout. The trumpet is the gospel, the declaration of the gospel. The light is the light of Christ shining through us. So that brings us to the first point in your outline. Just like he did with Gideon, he says God is giving you the light of Christ so that light can shine through you. In 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, it makes it clear that that. The clay jar is you and me. It's our bodies. It's who we are. That treasure inside of us is the gospel. It's supposed to burst through, right through us, even if the jar has to get destroyed. It's worth it. Jesus is worth it. That's the solution. That brings us to the next point of your outline. God gave us, you and me, the responsibility to participate in declaring the gospel to the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14, 18 through 20, it puts it, puts it this way. God is saying, I've given you the message of the reconciliation. I've entrusted it to you. Now go, be my ambassadors, and give it to the rest of the world. It's not supposed to rest with us. God gave us plenty of motivation. In those verses, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Hopefully, the love of Christ compels you. But in those same chapters, Paul says, I know I'm going to be in front of the judgment seat of Christ and He's going to judge what I've done in this body. God gives us plenty of other motivation other than positive as well. And we have history to show us. We have data that I've already shared with you. There's plenty of warning signs. God is saying, don't be like Israel. Instead... Be like a Gideon, be like a Deborah, be like the 300, and even the rest of Israel. Use your talents, your resources in order to have God's mission as the central focus of your life. Everything else will be added to you. God is saying future generations depend on that. We don't want the same cycle to keep happening where within one generation we lose focus and sense of purpose and we stop being fruitful and multiply. The next generation is watching. So the last point, the response is, how will you adjust your life in order? How will you participate in God's local and global mission to love Him, each other, and the world? I want to end with a couple of stories. I'm going to start with a couple of teenagers. My stepson and his girlfriend went through all of I Hope's workshops while in high school. They we went on four different mission trips while in high school, two overseas. Out of high school, they raised enough funds to go on a one-year mission trip, each to a different Islamic country. Last year, my stepson joined us as we went to the Middle East, declared the gospel to over 500 Muslims. He helped 19 of them accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God's mission is their central focus of their lives. A couple right here in America, the husband is a banker, the wife is an editor. They work a lot of hours, but the central focus of their life is God's mission. It shows up in the rest of their time, their finances and everything. They have one daughter who's seven years old today. They're modeling it for her. They're investing into the next generation. So what do they do? They seek out Muslims in their city. They go out of their way in their county just to hang out with them, to build gospel-centered relationships. They invite them to church with them. Dozens have come. Many have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They have Bible studies with them, discipleship studies with them. They're modeling that in front of their daughter. She has become a lightning rod for God's love and His light shining through her as a seven-year-old. She prays for the salvation of specific Muslims she's met through her mom and dad. She's picked a few that she actually prays with them in the, Je- in the name of Jesus. Last year, a, teenager, ex- a teenage Muslim boy accepted Jesus Christ as, her, as his Lord and Savior. That's a difference that a seven-year-old made. And if that wasn't enough, this year so far she's donated $14 of her own money. That's how we live for the Lord. So whether the Lord is calling you, and if the team comes up, worship team, if the Lord is calling you to pray for the salvation of Muslims, intentionally pray. Pray for those 300 that are on the front lines. Those missionaries that are going overseas, those that are going across the street right here in our city, in our county. If you've got resources, financial resources, give. Make God make giving a reflection of prioritizing God's mission over yours. Give to ministries that are reaching the unreached. Every day, forty-four thousand people who've never heard the gospel are dying. As you heard this message, over one thousand one hundred image-bearers died without ever hearing about salvation through Christ. That's an awful number. You and me can make a difference in that. You and me can help spark a movement to where the church and Christianity, their primary focus is God's mission and the advancement of the gospel. So it's like the 300 as they went to battle and shouted, We can do the same for God's glory and for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.